So now we're going to jump into this chapter 11, and so I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, whether it's physical or electronical, and open it up to uh, Isaiah chapter 11. There is a lot that I wish I could unpack in this passage. Um, it's a ton here that is it's just wonderful, it's beautiful, but we're just going to hit some highlights of it today, but I think it'll still be a blessing for us. I want to give you a roadmap for this morning so you can have an idea what to expect and where we're headed. As I said, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 11, but in order for us to get a better picture, a better understanding of the context, we're going to have to go through a little bit of the backstory. And after that, as we get into the chapter itself, we're going to see three main themes. We're going to see the king, his kingdom, and his people. And I'm going to spend the bulk of my time uh, speaking on the king, but we're, we're going to, uh, we'll get a glimpse of what his kingdom looks like and who his people are. And of course, we're going to end by looking at a couple ways that, uh, that we can apply this, so this can be helpful for our lives today. So with that, let's jump into the background info. After the death of King Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom was very, very rebellious. They were known for their sinfulness, for their, their rejection of God. Isaiah called them a godless nation. Second Kings 17 tells us this. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of, images of two calves and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. This is the description of Israel. God's people. And in God's kindness, he warned them numerous times through various prophets to, to turn and return to him, repent from their sins. But they ignored these warnings and they insist on living in their paganistic ways, worshiping false gods. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah describes them as this. He says they, they, were, they had pride and arrogance in their heart that their leaders were unrepentant and, and were leading people astray from the truth of God. There was a growing wickedness among the people, so much so that Isaiah described them as the fuel for the fire of wickedness. And finally, he says that they were people of injustice. They had sinful laws, laws that were oppressive and, and were against the poor and the widows and, and the fatherless. And remember in Isaiah 117, what did he tell them to do? He said, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Isaiah, I mean, Israel was living in exact opposition to what God had called them to. Sin saturated every level of their lives. From the highest leaders, whether they be religious or civil, to the ordinary people. And because of this... Because of their unrepentance and their wickedness and rebellion, Isaiah tells them of a coming judgment. Israel would be conquered by the Assyrian army. And if we thought Israel was bad, you've got to understand that the Assyrians were just flat out evil. Everyone feared them. They were brutal. They were vile. You did not want to be conquered by the Assyrians. Yet it is through these people that God would bring his judgment upon his people. And here's how chapter 10 describes the Assyrians conquering Israel. They, he, it says that they are as an axe in the hand of the Lord, chopping down the nation of Israel as a force being cut down. They're just a tool in God's hands. 
In reality, it's the Lord himself that's bringing the house of Israel down to nothing but stumps. But God's judgment in this story does not end with Israel. Isaiah next tells us that because of the pride and arrogance of Assyria in conquering Israel, they too would suffer defeat. Not because they conquered Israel, but because of their pride and arrogance. Because the, 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 the king of Assyria, he said that it was he, he is the one in his, in his own strength, in his own wisdom, his own understanding that destroyed Israel. And so Isaiah tells us of their fate as he describes God now coming again, but he is the axe chopping down the nation of Assyria. When we first moved to Valley Center, right on this uh, grove over here, which you can't see at the moment, but on this grove, I mean, right on top of this hill, there was, a, there was an orange grove, if you remember that being there many years back. And we could see it from our backyard, and, and my family and I, we thought it was beautiful. We loved to look at it. But one day, they came down, and they chopped down the grove. And what was left? Nothing but unsightly, barren stumps. And this is the picture Isaiah is trying to give us, but on a grander scale. Maybe think of uh, all the trees of Palomar being chopped down. Both Israel and Assyria are described as mighty forests being brought down to lifeless stumps. And think about a forest being cut down for a moment. There's no more limbs whistling in the wind. No shade coverings for the creatures below. No birds chirping and flying about. No life. No sound, nothing but stumps as far as the eye can see. This is the result of sin, man's pride. There's devastation, death, and hopelessness. Now, not everyone who lived in Israel rejected God. There was a small group of people known as the remnant of Israel. They worshiped God. They obeyed God. I imagine they prayed for their kingdom. They probably tried to point people back to the true living God and told them of his rules and his statutes, but to no avail. And so this remnant through the, through the prophet Isaiah knew God's judgment was coming to Israel. And as citizens of this kingdom, they too would suffer under the conquering Assyrians. But at this point, it's time for some good news. It's time for some hope. And this is where we pick up in chapter 11. The remnant is the target audience of this chapter. And we'll see that Isaiah is looking to bring them hope and encouragement as he tells them about the coming king, his kingdom, and his people. So look with me, if you will, please, at Isaiah 11. Let's just look at verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And we just talked about in chapter 10, right? It ends in despair and hopelessness. The, the forest is chopped down. There's nothing left but these lifeless stumps. And here in verse 1, something amazing happens. A, a shoot appears. A, a little sprig, a twig, begins to rise up from one of the stumps. One that Isaiah says will bear fruit. Hope and life has returned to the lifeless forest. So what is or who is this branch, the shoot that will bring hope? Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation twenty two sixteen. 16. He says, I am the root, the descendant of David. The word here that Jesus uses for root can also mean that which springs up from a root, a sprout, a shoot. Through, through this verse and, and many more throughout Scripture, we can 
see that Isaiah 11 refers to Jesus. He is the branch. He is the shoot. And I imagine if you're looking at the forest of stumps, you're probably not going to notice a little sprig growing, would you? Yet this is the description given of a king who is to bring hope to the remnant. Not because he's insignificant, but because he is the humble king. He is the humble king. And to show this point of humility even more, look where Isaiah says and what he says next, where the humble king comes from. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from where? From the stump of Jesse. If you remember, Christ was promised through the lineage of David. So you might ask, why then, if that's so, why is Jesse named here and not David? If I was going to tell you who my ancestors were, or are, I would pick the ones that are more notable ones, the ones that I think that would be more impressive. But that's not what happens here. And to help us understand why, it's important to note that by the time Christ was born, it had been some 600 years since any of David's descendants sat on the throne. When Jesus arrived in the manger, the people of God had no nation. They had no kingdom. They had no king. And if David was named here, it would point it back to the great dynasty of David, leaning on his legacy. But to name Jesse, the lesser of the two, speaks to the humility of this humble king. And so why is this humility so important? There are many reasons, but there's one that I want to point out today. As a humble king, he can relate to his people. He can relate to his people. Let's think about a king for a moment. Kings usually live and grow up within the walls of a palace, and and they don't experience life as the commoners. They are protected and sheltered in their royalty. And there's often a great disconnect between them and the people that they rule over. Jesus, however, did not experience such a sheltered life. Instead of growing up in in a palace in the safety of castle walls, he experienced life as the commoners, as the ordinary people. He, as they, would would experience hunger and pain and sorrow and, and loss and betrayal and injustice, even tasting death itself. You'd be tempted as they are. He knew what it was to live life as an ordinary person. Think back to the remnant for a moment. Their leaders, they were prideful. They were unrepentant. They passed laws that benefited them while crushing the people they ruled over. And even before these leaders, King David, a man after God's own heart, He had pride in his life. He, like other men, had to repent of his sins. We have record of that, right? In Psalm 51, his his psalm of repentance. There had to be a sacrifice made for David's sins. But Jesus, this king, he was different. He had no pride to confess, no Psalm 51 to write, no sacrifice needed to be made on his behalf. He was sinless, not because he was sheltered from temptation, No, remember, he subjected himself to live life as we live it, including being tempted in every way. And because of this, he can sympathize with the weakness of his people, the commoners. He truly is the humble king. But he's not only the humble king, he's also the anointed king. He's the anointed king. The the anointing of a king was a big deal. Way back in Bethlehem, way before Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, when David was just a boy, Samuel took oil and anointed David with it. 
1 Samuel 16, 13 tells us that, that when Samuel did this, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The anointing was to show that David was God's chosen king to lead the people of Israel. But of course, this anointing would not last forever, would it? David would pass away, and with him, with his death, his anointing would go as well. But Isaiah is going to tell us of anointing that will never pass away. One that will show us who is the rightful, eternal, true king. Let's look at the beginning of verse 2. It says, speaking of Jesus, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is the picture of Jesus being anointed. And we can find this being fulfilled at his baptism, Matthew 3.16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And, and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The, the spirit of the Lord rests on Jesus, showing that he is the Christ, the Messiah, which both of these terms being anointed or chosen. David's anointing was given by, by sinful man on behalf of God, and it passed away as David did. But Jesus' anointing, Acts 10, 38 points out, was given through the Spirit by God the Father for all eternity. The anointing shows us that Jesus is God's appointed. He is the one true eternal king. But the anointing goes beyond that. Look at the rest of the verses. Uh, look at verses 2 and 3. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And, and listen to this next part. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Isaiah has listed for us seven qualities or gifts imparted to Jesus by the Holy Spirit from the anointing. Remember, seven is the number of, uh, used to demonstrate perfection. So, so this anointing is perfect. It lacks nothing. And I know there's seven gifts lists listed here, and each are important. But I really want to focus on the last one. He shall delight in the fear of the Lord. The remnant of Israel, they were used to leaders who rejected God, who delighted in serving themselves, puffing themselves up pushing their own agenda, but not Jesus Christ. John 8, 29 lets us know that in everything that Jesus did and does, he does to please the Father. Why? Because his delight is in the fear of the Lord. A great example of this is in the garden. When the cruelty of the cross and, and the wrath of God lay before Jesus, what was his prayer? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What a great king. What a great ruler. He's not self-seeking. He's not self-serving. His actions not only bring glory to God perfectly, but he serves and sacrifices for the people he loves in love. Who leads like that? Only one who acts and moves to please the Father. That is what perfect spirit anointing looks like. Jesus is the humble king. He is the anointed king. And now we're going to see he is the just king. He is the just king. 
verses 3 through 5, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Remember the remnant are used to leaders who oppressed the poor. But Jesus, King Jesus, is the defender of the poor. In Israel, wickedness was everywhere and unchecked, but King Jesus strikes down the wickedness by the word of his mouth. Man looks to outward appearances, but the just king does not judge by what he sees or by what he hears. He knows and judges each person by absolute truth according to what is in their heart. Do you remember what Jesus called the Pharisees? He called them white-washed tombs. They looked righteous. They were doing the things that made them appear holy on the outside. But on the inside, they were wicked. They were dead. Their hearts were far from God. Contrast that with Matthew 5.3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are, are the exact opposite of whitewashed tombs. They understand that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they are sinners. And they know they need a savior. The just king doesn't play favorites. His judgments are true. They are right. And when he returns, he will bring wickedness to an end for good. No evil can escape his final judgment. And he will judge both living and the dead, not based on their works, not based on their appearance, but what is on the inside, what is in their heart. This is the humble king. This is the anointed king. This is the just king. And when there's such a king as this, we're going to see next in the following few verses, he has a kingdom unlike any that we've ever seen before. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing shall, shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Then, I mean, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. There's a lot of imagery going on here, and I wish we could unpack it all, but, that, but here's the picture we're supposed to get. The king's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. The king's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. For the remnant, their leaders and their government were evil, filled with sin and injustice. Their, their nation was in continuous turmoil. Wickedness was everywhere. Conflicts were a part of everyday life. Isaiah doesn't come to them and tell them not to worry about it, that God will keep them and their country safe and everything will be all right. Instead, he points them to a coming kingdom, one that will never fail its people, a new kingdom where perfect peace will reign forever. 
And it's only in this new kingdom that we find the true solution to poverty and, and to hunger, to injustice, to oppression, and all the sorrows and pains that we have here on earth. A place where even animals who once devoured one another will live in perfect peace together. Where nations will no longer fight and consume one another. Brothers and sisters, there is a day coming when sinful men will no longer rule the people of God in all their self-glorifying, self-centered desires. King Jesus, the only true ruler, he will rule and reign and peace will never end throughout his entire kingdom. Ah, what glorious day when Jesus returns as we sing about a moment ago. And this good news is not only for the remnant. We know that, but let's see that here in this chapter as we look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. I love this verse, and let me show you why. Isaiah refers again to Jesus as the root of Jesse. He's reminding us of Christ's humility. And it seems he does so in order to contrast with what he says next in the verse. That this humble king will stand as a signal. The Hebrew word for signal means something lifted up. So Isaiah is saying, in essence, the humble king, the lowly one, will be lifted up. And lifted up for who? For all peoples and nations to see. Listen to what Jesus says about himself being lifted up in, in John 12, 32. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So, so what does this lifting up mean? Well, John explains that in the very next verse. He, Jesus, said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So don't miss this. When Christ, the humble king, was lifted up on the cross, he became a banner, a beacon, and not just for the remnant. Paul actually points this out in Romans 15 when he quotes verse 10 from Isaiah to show that the reach of God's kingdom goes beyond the Jews, and it's for the Gentiles, people who are not Jews, you, me. And that Christ died for the Jews and Gentiles alike. So Paul affirms with this chapter that the king offers salvation to all peoples. And unlike earthly kings and politicians, Jesus does not try to win us over with charisma or gimmicks or charms or, or empty promises. Instead, he did something that I've never heard of another king doing in the history of humanity. He, the king, laid down his life for the common people. And he did so by being lifted up on the cross, offering salvation to all who will come and believe. These are his people, those who look to him, who call upon his name and repent. If that is you, dear saints, you are his. And if, if you have yet to call on him for salvation, I want to tell you the judgment coming to you one day will be far worse than being carried off by these Syrians. Because of, of sin and the rejection of God, you will be sentenced by the king to an eternity in hell. So I, I, I plead with you, look to the cross where Jesus was lifted up. Call on his name, repent of your sins, be saved. And he'll be your king. And you will be accounted among, you will be counted among his people. 
this king, he offers salvation to all peoples. So to the remnant of Israel, Isaiah pointed them to the great king and his kingdom. And for us, let's consider together what this text means for us today. What do we do with this? Well, first, we kind of hit on this point a little bit just a second ago. But we are citizens of his kingdom. We are citizens of his kingdom. A subpoint to that would be this world is not our home. As I was studying this passage, this part really hit me hard. Most of you know that I was born and raised in Texas. And we Texans say that we are citizens of Texas before we are even citizens of the United States. One of my boys showed me a shirt the other day that, that really summed it up. It said, I'm from Texas. What country are you from? In our family, we are so Texan that another one of my boys tells people that we don't live in California right now. He says we're just on a very long extended vacation, one that's lasted for nine years. And you know what's funny? He wasn't even born in Texas. His birth certificate says California on it. And this is not a knock at California, okay? We love you guys. We love the church. We love Valley Center. But our affections from where we're from, and our love for our home state, it's strong. We miss it. We care for it. We long to be home. Isn't this the picture that we're supposed to, uh, isn't the picture what we're supposed to be like as Christians? Longing for our home. And I don't mean the state of Texas or any other state or even a nation. Instead, our affections, our longings should be for our true home, where our, our true citizenship is found in the kingdom of God. Remember this, the song, this world's not my home, I'm just a passing through. I'd venture to guess, I would guess to say that most people do not know that when the Roman Empire fell, it was considered a Christian nation. In 323 A.D., Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So when the empire came tumbling down at the hands of a barbaric nation, 410 A.D., many of that day struggled with why a Christian nation, one they loved and cared for, would fall to such an evil people. St. Augustine, who lived during that time, wrote a book called The City of God. And he wrote it to help the Christians as they wrestled through all of this. He argued in essence, essence that there are no Christian nations, but that all nations here on earth are of man. He also taught that our true home is the city of God. Listen to what he wrote. In truth, these two cities, the city of man and the city of God, are entangled together in this world. Sometimes the city of man honors the city of God and its virtues, other times not. For those who follow Christ, their true home is God's city. Always pure and more beautiful than, earthly, than any earthly one. Brothers and sisters, I love Texas. I love the United States. But this country, this state that I love, it will one day pass away. Whether it's soon or whether it's when the world ends, this land is not the promised land, even though I will tell you many Texans think Texas is. This is not the new Jerusalem. This is the city of man, interested in the things of man, sinful man at that. Our true citizenship, it's in the king's kingdom. And I am not suggesting by this that we bury our heads in the sand and say, well, this world is no concern to me, then I'm just waiting for heaven. 
No, because we have a command to not only love God, but to love others. And as part of loving others, remember what Isaiah said, uh, we looked at 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In James 127, we're told to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. But notice the end result of each of these. It's love and concern for others. And we can check our hearts pretty quick on this one by looking at our vote motivation and our attitude. My motivation, am I fighting for what I believe is right so that I can ultimately have comfort and peace and live my life undisturbed by other people? Or am I truly seeking to serve the best interests of others, fighting for those who cannot speak for themselves, seeking good, correcting oppression? In my attitude, not only my motivation, but my attitude, am I seeking the good of where God has called me to live? And as I do so, am I doing according to the fruit of the Spirit? Am I drenched in the character of Christ, speaking in a living way that glorifies Him? Listen, when we see injustice and oppression and other sinful behaviors around us, it's not that we don't respond to these things. It's that we respond to them as those who are in Christ, who he is our king and we are citizens of his kingdom. Because if he is our king, if we are those citizens, then our lives should not look like those who are of this world. His salvation should affect every area of our lives. It should mold us. It should shape us. The, the way we think, the way we act, the way we talk, our entertainment choices, where, where we place our hope, our interactions with everyone around us. Our schedule, our, our days, remembering our time is not our own. But we're ser- seeking to serve the king each moment, busy with his agenda, his purpose, his plans. Brothers and sisters, we serve and belong to a great king. We are citizens of a greater kingdom. And, and it's, it's this king, this kingdom that should ref- be reflected in all that we do. Because we have a greater purpose, a greater mission, and that is to take these truths and go and tell the world. We're to go and tell the world. What's the mission of our church? Y'all say this with me when you put it on the screen. To glorify God by being and making disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the mission of our church. As a community of believers, we seek to gather and grow, and give, and go. And what does this go? It's to go and tell the world the good news of Jesus Christ, which aligns with Matthew 20 and 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded with you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you are in Christ, this should be the desire in your heart to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. I believe for many of you, brothers and sisters, that is exactly your desire. But then I have to ask, we have to ask ourselves, if this is our desire, then why are we all not out preaching and sharing the gospel? And I think there are many reasons why, but, but here are three. I think we don't share the gospel often because we're afraid of what others will say or think. We don't want the rejections, the mockery, the broken friendships. Brothers and sisters, let's remember what's at stake. People's eternal souls. As the people of God, we 
may we lose more friends and relationships, not because of our political views, not because where we stand on mandates or masks or anything like that. May, may the relationships be broken because we are doing the work that God has called us to, sharing the gospel in love and joy and patience and gentleness in the fruit of the Spirit. And when you have these fears, remember this, that salvation is the work of God. It's not in your control. You share the gospel. God is responsible for the work in people's hearts. And also remember that rejection will come often, if not most of the time. And that's okay. What is the gauge of our success in sharing the gospel? Is it the number of conversions? No. The measure of our success is this. Are we being obedient and sharing the good news with the world around us? And if we are, then we will experience rejection, and then we remember that salvation is the work of God. I think another reason why we don't share it often is because we overcomplicate it. Listen, there is not just one way to share the gospel. That's because people are different, situations are different. I don't know if I've ever shared it twice the same way. The message is the same, but my approach differs based on individuals. And it's nothing that you have to overthink. You're just sharing the story of what Christ has done. It's nothing fancy, nothing methodical. Just communicate the simple, profound story of what God has done for wicked sinners and leave the outcome to him. And a third reason that we might be hesitant to share the gospel is that we don't know enough of the Bible. I get that. We should be reading, studying, growing in the word. But we are not called to go and teach theology. We are not called to go and defend God. We are called to go and preach the good news to those around us. People will try to sidetrack us down all sorts of side routes. Don't follow them. Stay the course of the gospel. When someone is saved by God's grace and their eyes have been opened to the truth by his spirit, then by his spirit, they can start to understand the theological truths. And guys, I struggle with these as well. Even as a pastor, I have these fears. We all have fears. But we can take God's help to do what God has called us to and to trust him with the results. And you know what? I've never known a time that I've shared the gospel with someone and regretted it. A couple years back, my family and I, we went to Chick-fil-A around Christmas time. It was evening. And to my surprise, there were very few people there. My wife, she went inside to place the order while I stayed in our van with the kids. And, and I noticed this gal walk up to the Chick-fil-A window, peer through it, and she would look at the menu. And she looked down and count the change in her hand. Then she looked at the menu again. She counted the change once more, and then she stuck the change in her pocket and began to walk off. She came by our van, so I rolled down the wood, and I said, hey, are you hungry? Can we get you something to eat? And she said, yeah. So I found out what she was going to eat, and I called my wife. And I said, hey, add this to the order. Well, then as uh, we were waiting for the food to come out, she stayed right there by the van, and we were just chatting and talking. And I was looking for a way. How can I show her her need, not only for food, but her need for a Savior? And I, I truthfully don't remember how that conversation transitioned there, but I remember telling of, of God and his love and how Jesus is the way to the Father. And she, she told me, no, I believe there are many ways to God. And so I asked her, I said, okay, well, let me ask you this. And she, well, 
she said not only there are many ways to God, she said she didn't believe in absolute truth. So I said, let me ask you this. The concrete you're standing on, is it hard? Her reply was, well, the sand at the beach is soft. And I said, I said, I agree with you. It's soft. Will you agree with me that the concrete you're standing on is solid? It's hard. She said, okay, I'll agree with you that. And I said, okay, so at least we can grieve that there is some constant truth. She said, yes. So with that, I shared the gospel story with her again. How we are all as sinners are headed to hell for the wrongs that we have done. And the Father loved us with such a great love that he sent his son to die for our sins. Bringing salvation and forgiveness and eternal life to all who will call and believe on him. As, as Escal and I kept talking, you could see her heart start, start to soften. It was so nice to see. And, and at some point, Angie brought the food, and, and uh, we gave her food. And I politely reminded her, you don't have to stick around. You have the food. You can leave. But she stayed. And, and we kept talking and kept talking. And at some point, I don't know why, but I really started focusing on, I won't say I know why, the Spirit's prompting, but I started focusing on the Father's love and how no matter what sin she was thinking of at that moment, that God would never forgive. Because of the Father's great love and through the sacrifice of Jesus, she could be forgiven. And out of nowhere, she just starts weeping. Just this deep, deep and hard cry. And I was silent and the van was silent. After a minute two or two, she looked at me. She says, I got to go. And she walked off. I don't know what happened to her. I don't know if she rejected the work that God was doing clearly in her heart. Or if one day we'll rejoice together in heaven. I don't know. But what I do know is sharing the gospel with her was not a failure. We are called to go and tell and to be on the lookout in different ways that we can share the gospel with people. And then not only look for those ways, but actually share the gospel with them. One author wrote, it, wrote, like, wrote this. He said, it is the duty of every disciple of Christ to do all he can in person and by prayer to make others acquainted with Jesus. Where is our faith if we neglect this duty? Where is our love? It may be well questioned where people know the value of the gospel themselves if they do not desire to make it known to all the world. And what does Romans 10 tell us? It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And you may say, wait a minute, I'm not sent. Oh, but you are. Go and tell the world the good news of Jesus. Tell them of this amazing king who is humble, who is anointed, who is just. Greater than any ruler the world has ever known. Tell them of this, this coming kingdom where perfect peace will reign forever. Let, let us not be ashamed. Let us not be afraid. Let's go and tell the world, the world of this great news. They need it too. Let's pray.
Our eternal king, we thank you for the hope that you offered to the remnant through Isaiah in this passage. And in turn, we thank you for the truths and the hope that it brings us today. Father, we confess it is so easy to get entangled with the cares of this world that, that we lose sight of our, of our citizenship in the eternal kingdom. And we get distracted from the mission that you have called us to, that we are to go and tell the world the hope that we have in Christ. Help us, we pray, this week, this very day, to live in light of these truths. Help us to seek to glorify you, our King, in all that we do. We pray in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.